Welcome to this week's episode of the Geek Offensive Podcast. On the show this week, I have Chef Rainstar, the executive chef of the Wall Restaurant in Orange. Chef, thank you for coming aboard. This was a lot of fun. Uh, not a problem. Yeah, my name is uh, Chef Rainstar. You could find me on Instagram at One Celery Injustice for All. Uh, come down to the Wall Restaurant in Orange. We have a pop up in Redlands and a location in Vegas as well. Be sure to check him out in Orange. He's got some... I mean, we talk about the restaurant all the time on the show, so we can't recommend your food enough, Chef. Uh, yeah, on the show, we, we go into your background. We learn a lot about uh, your experiences and uh, uh, kind of a little bit of what goes into, um, well, basically how you ended up where you are today and uh, a little bit of the uh, creative side as well. So this was a fascinating like insight into the world of uh being a chef <laughs> literally could have listened to you talk for another hour and a half yeah without a doubt yeah <laughs> i'll come back for part two very soon nice. yeah we'll definitely set that up uh dave where can people find you uh you can find me on that boy 1989 on instagram or david boyd on facebook get into those dms yeah let's go let's just make a game out of this just, <laughs> if you're listening Send me a DM of anything. I will respond appropriately <laughs> to whatever you said. I promise. I think the goal is we got to get that happen by the end of the year. Yeah, just uh, like before let, 2020. Let's start with one, guys. <laughs> let's start with one, and then let's let's go from there. Let's build this monster that is my DM, <laughs> my empty DM box at the moment. But um, yeah, uh, one thing I like to plug is. Um, you know, veterans and veterans health, uh, you know, just reaching out to guys that, um, you know, have gone through some of the most hectic stuff you can imagine. And uh, when they get home, they kind of thinking that you're going through it alone. Just know that you're not. Uh, reach out to your buddies. Check on your buddies. Um, there's tons of resources out there. Like I said, hit those DMs. I will be your friend. <laughs> I promise you. We are brothers and sisters. So don't worry about it. We're good. But, um, yeah, so take care of each other. <laughs> and you can find me on Instagram at Justin Malari and on Twitter at Justin underscore Malari. And the Geek Offensive has its own social media as well. Look for the handle at Geek Offensive. This show is brought to you by the Geek Say What Network. So big thank you to the network and its owner, JPG, for giving us a platform. He makes me say thank you to him. So fuck that guy. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that every show. I don't care. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, don't forget to check out all of the uh, podcasts available from the network right now on Apple and Google Podcasts or any other major pla podcasting platform. First up, we have Ready, Set, Geek, your starting line to geek culture, hosted by Alex Catherine. And then we have Geek KO, your weekly trivia podcast, hosted by Justin Madriaga and Ish. Then we have Diverse Geeks in Focus, hosted by Gemma Vidal, putting a lens on marginalized issues within the geek community. And then we have our actual play RPG podcast, Nerds on a Roll, hosted by Rob, uh, Rob Zagara and Lauren Peterson and their whole crew. And finally, we have Pencil Net Geeks, our wrestling-dedicated podcast, tagging in your inner wrestling geek, hosted by Berto Ponce and Elaine DeLalas. All our shows are available right now on, uh, again, every major platform. There's no excuse not to listen to us. Please subscribe, and we really do appreciate it. Uh, next up, our associate producers, Wayland Productions. Um, you can find them at wayland.ws. They help us look uh, sound great. Uh, they provide the space and the equipment for us. We uh, really couldn't do the show without them. Um, find them, at, like I said, at wayland.ws. And follow their audio drama, Where Live Gold Rush, now available on Apple Podcasts. Uh, 
Finally, uh, last shout out goes to jordandene.com. That's jordan, D-E-N-E dot com. They're a geek apparel store out of Brooklyn, New York. They help you look nerdy and they're eco-friendly. And if you shop with the promo code GeekSayWhat, you get 20% off your next purchase. So buy a shirt, you heathens. And that's it for the plugs. Chef, thank you again for coming in. I can't wait to come back to the restaurant and say hi and definitely try out uh, the new menu coming up yeah my pleasure look forward to seeing you don't forget to rate comment and subscribe to join the offensive cue my music no real like starter like here's the we just kind of yeah. start talking oh, I, sure. <laughs> sure. I mean we can no. start with that chicken yeah <laughs> but uh chef rainstar thanks for coming in man uh, ever since i had you on at uh, the walls event for street fair I was, i've been dying to get you in here for a full interview so thanks for taking the time out oh yeah not a problem and it's, it's my pleasure really i've never done a pad- podcast before uh kind of makes me feel a little bit like a rock star i'm not gonna lie oh we pop into your podcast cherry yeah yes. absolutely <laughs> that's fantastic oh man but uh chef uh chef rainstar is the executive chef at the wall in orange and if you've been listening to the show i mean myself and the crew frequent that place Absolutely. fairly regularly so delicious Delicious food, delicious yeah. beer. The yeah. whole like the whole process. Yeah. Because it is very much the process of what the wall mm-hmm. is. The whole self pour thing. Mm-hmm. Uh and the food. And it's like it's finger food, but it's very much like dinner or lunch as well. Yeah, how you would know? you how would you describe the food at the wall? Usually I mean we're familiar yeah, with it, obviously. Usually, but, usually yeah. how I describe the food is uh it's the food that you seek out if you're wandering around another country drunk at two AM in the morning. <laughs> that that's the kind of food that we serve there by design uh our concept is international street food so i take flavors from all around the world and i try to put them into things that are somewhat uh, relatable or uh to you know what you would normally eat like the breakfast burrito everybody has a breakfast burrito but the wall has their own rendition of the breakfast burrito our wings are our own sauces so the gochu cola wings is a combination of a cola reduction and and gochujang which is a korean fermented uh red pepper paste and together it comes across as kind of like a spicy teriyaki Mm -hmm. and then we have the firecracker sauce which is like a vietnamese fusion uh it's a little bit spicy it's got a lot of fish sauce in there some lime juice um pretty phenomenal yeah and i think that's one thing i like about the style of food there and that uh, and, and restaurants do similar concepts is like you're taking a not so everyday uh ingredient like the gochujang um to you know american audiences and like you're making it very accessible Right. Yeah. One of one of my biggest goals uh, with the walls menu is I want to get people outside of their comfort zone a mm-hmm. little bit. A lot of people come in and ask for hot wings, and you know you could, you could get hot wings at you know Buffalo Wild Wings, but when you come to the wall, you're gonna get the wings that that we've prepared for you and. 
even though they might not be what you're used to, I guarantee you'll be happy with it. Right. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then like a lot of changes, they're not like frozen wings that might have come in on a Oh no, truck. absolutely yeah. <laughs> not. Yeah, all our wings come in fresh and they're all um mm-hmm. prepared. Yeah, you definitely taste the difference. Um but yeah, I, I think with today's like society and like uh that sounded really pretentious but with like today's <laughs> uh customers i'll say um i think the interest in food and like our standards in food have all like increased and you're seeing more restaurants like the wall um like even my watching habits involve like I'm, I'm a little more fascinated with what i eat and i think that's something we've talked about a lot on the show prior is that you know, be careful what you put in your body like keep track of what's yeah. going in there uh, oh absolutely yeah. you know customers are both your best and your worst enemies these yeah. days because uh you know you live to please your customer you live to serve your customer and we wouldn't have jobs without our customers but at the same time in the day and age of social media Mm -hmm. you know you're you're only as good as your last instagrammable plate uh as soon as you send out uh, a tray full of slop you know it it can be game over for the day because all the people that are following that one particular quote-unquote influencer they see that and they're like oh i'm not going there so uh as much as we do eat with our eyes it is also important to know where our food comes from and one of the major reasons i i became interested in cooking is because i've always been very fascinated with where our food comes from uh you know everything from you know food history to the hybridization of of vegetables over centuries cultivated by humans uh to the discovery of of certain spices around the world i've always found that very very fascinating yeah like for example i didn't know broccoli doesn't really grow in the wild yeah and i have to like or carrots were purple yeah originally yeah stuff like that like that stuff blows my mind yeah so so broccoli and and cruciferous vegetables in general at one point it was all one plant and through hybridization that we've cultivated different varieties of this cruciferous vegetable to come up with the desirable traits that we like so you know broccoli cauliflower brussels sprouts Mm -hmm. those all pretty much descended from the same plant and over hundreds of years humans have bred different varieties to get the qualities that we like out of them but yes you will never see broccoli in the wild you probably never see cauliflower in the wild Uh uh, probably never brussels sprouts there might be something uh akin to that but to be honest i'm not even entirely sure what the original cruciferous vegetable looked like if i had to guess it was probably something like a small cabbage Mm -hmm. yeah yeah, and you see that with, like, corn and, like, tomato. Just, like, what they used to look like. And I'm like, yeah. oh, how do we do that? <laughs> oh, Although, sure. it, it's funny that... Um, well, let's actually get your take on this. A lot of people are kind of iffy on genetically modified foods. But what we did was kind of genetically modify foods to get to where it's edible. So Oh, sure. I mean, is that term kind of loaded in your opinion i i do think it's somewhat loaded uh you cannot eat anything that you buy at the store whether it's ralph's albertson's or whole foods today without it having been genetically modified at some point or and or hybridized right. um i think a lot of people don't realize when 
you say the word genetically modified, that is a very, very broad category. Mm-hmm. Uh, when it comes to being more recently gene- genetically modified, we have found a way to speed up the process of genetically modifying uh, fruits and vegetables and, and even some animals to give us the desirable traits that, that we covet. Um, and I think people are uncomfortable with the speed in which we can do that now. Oh, okay, so that's what it is. So there's some kind of accelerator we put in, like, vegetables? Is that... Well, we got like, better at the science. Okay. B- before, with the genetic modification, it was a process of getting uh, similar plants that you could hybridize and breading them together to create a hybrid or a mutant that would give you the specific traits of, of that one food item that you would want. However... You know, if if you know anything about genetics, it's not always a 100% guarantee that you're going to get the exact thing that you want um, the first time. So what we've done over the course of human history is we have hybridized and hybridized and hybridized until we've gotten exactly what we wanted. Now with what we can do with genetic modification now is we can break it down at the level of a DNA and we can put in the exact traits that we want into the DNA of, say, a potato to make it more tolerant against uh, insects or blight. And I see. And then all we have to do is, is create that DNA and hybridize that, and, and we're done. We skip so many generations of, of hybridizing just mm-hmm. by pure genetic manipulation. Now, is that what seems to scare people off with that term? Because usually when you hear it, it's it's used as a negative. Yeah, I, yeah. I believe so. I, I, you know, I believe a lot of people are uh, misinformed about genetic modification in, mm-hmm. in general. Um, they, they don't see the science that goes into it, and they don't... Well, what they do is they believe that you could put any DNA into like say a carrot and and you know potentially you could however we have to take it on faith that the scientists developing these things have the the best interests of the consumers in mind Mm -hmm. and they're not putting in things that would do us um harm over the long term and the jury is still out on that for the most part however if you do take into the account uh, the hybridization uh, method of genetically modifying, which we've been doing over hundreds of years, uh, we're essentially getting the same thing as we are by utilizing these shortcuts just a lot sooner. However, since we are more or less synthetically manipulating these genes, I think a lot of people are scared about that. Right. It, it's funny that it's like when you... When you uh, breed two plants together it's like oh you're changing all these genes and then the fact that we can go in and change one seems to kind of like <laughs> right and very, people. we yeah. could change one very specifically yeah is more to the point uh what i think is interesting is even with something as simple as an apple uh, apple will mutate every generation so if apple falls out of a tree and it goes to seed a tree grows it will mutate from its parent you will not get the same apples that mm-hmm. that grew 
through on it. So a lot of the apples that we get today that you find at the grocery store, a lot of those are, are grafted onto other apple trees that, that have, you know, kind of grown up. And then they, they graft the limbs of, you know, a certain variety on like a Granny Smith apple mm -hmm. or a Pink Lady or a Gala. Uh, they'll take a cutting and graft uh, the cutting onto a young sapling. So when it grows up, it's you know, producing that specific apple. But if you were to just run around and plant apple seeds everywhere, you will get different varieties of apples because it mutates every generation. Yeah, so they'll look more regular, like different sizes and stuff. Yeah, like they that. could be yeah. different colors, different sizes. They might taste different. They might be more bitter, oh, less sweet, more sour. You know, it, it kind of reminds me of the old Johnny Appleseed, you know, mm -hmm. that, that old uh, uh, folk tale of Johnny Appleseed yeah. kind of uh, going around, you know, spitting apple seeds all over the place. And, you know, uh, as kids, we learned that, that we, that he did that to like combat hunger. But, you know, in reality, he was going around doing that, just planting apple trees willy nilly to produce apples to make a liquor called Applejack. So just turns out <laughs> that, that Johnny Appleseed was a drunk the whole time. <laughs> Where's that movie? I'll watch that. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> I know. That explains Holly, why Apple Jacks is like my favorite cereal. Yeah. <laughs> Hollywood never makes a good movie. Never. Yeah. <laughs> never. I was wondered where the, the liquor came from because I used to work retail for a liquor store and like that was like a very specific customer needed sure. Applejack and like I always had to know where it was. Yeah, yeah, and you know, you don't even see Applejack on the on the store shelves too often anymore. Yeah, it's very it's, rare. It's been replaced by by whiskey. Whiskey has gotten huge these days. But mm -hmm. uh you know, back in the day of Johnny Appleseed's time, um Applejack was the was what they were drinking cuz it was cheaper to buy than whiskey. Yeah, it's like closer to a brandy from what I can recall. It it is it's made in the same way a whiskey is made just mm. with apples yeah sounds like it'd be sweeter might even taste better <clears throat> you um i yeah. i have had some applejack that's you know small batch craft stuff yeah. and it tastes similar to whiskey um however uh through the they they do age it in barrels like they do with like bourbon but they're not using like freshly charred oak like mm -hmm. they would a bourbon they're just getting the leftover barrel so it has kind of a uh, remnant flavor of a uh, of some kind of like woodiness mm -hmm. a little bit of uh caramely and then the apple is not as pronounced as you think it is it, it yeah. definitely tastes appley but uh it is more kind of like a cross between like apple brandy and and whiskey it's it's kind of yeah. kind of unique nice. yeah and it's interesting because it's not quite the sweetness you think of that it's it's whatever that makes the apple appley is what kind of comes through it's weird um but yeah have you always had like an affinity toward like I mean, obviously, you must have a good palate because you can cook, but, I mean, has that always been a thing in your life? Have you always been, like, someone who uh, who could cook? Well, it started when I was really young, really so young. Okay. I remember the first thing that I ever cooked and what a disaster it was. Um my my dad was on the east coast going to school at the time and i was really young maybe 12 years old at the time and uh my mom and i we were left to kind of fend for ourselves while i was going to school and she was going to work and mm -hmm. you know um 
during the summer she was still going to work and i was at home all day and she would get mad at me just loafing around all day (laughs) and so i remember her telling me you better be productive during the day if you don't if you don't do something productive by the time i get back there's going to be trouble she says (laughs) so um you know i i've always hated like really really hard work as a kid Mm -hmm. Uh, i never liked sweating uh, it's so, funny now since you're a chef and it's like you're in right. the kitchen. And, <laughs> yeah, and now it's a Filling lot of hard work. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> uh, but as a kid, I, I looked around and I'm like, hmm, what, what can I do around here that's not actual work? And then I was like, <laughs> oh, maybe I'll cook something. That seems easy enough. So I'm, I'm looking through this old Betty Crocker cookbook at things that I could potentially make. And I'm like, you know, looking at this, I'm like, roasted chicken. No, we don't have that in the refrigerator. I'm like mm-hmm. leafing through and I, I stumble across this thing and I'm like, oh blueberry pie i was like oh yeah we got a can of blueberry pie filling somewhere mm-hmm. and i'm like i've never made the crust before though so i'm reading i'm reading it about what to do with the butter and the salt and the flour and i say okay this that sounds easy enough you're just basically mixing all this stuff together and you're about how old while you're doing this? about 12 years 12 old, years old okay. yeah and so I get a big bowl and I and I get all my ingredients out and at the time my my mom was like obsessed with like Emerald Lagasse so you know <laughs> Bam. when when you see all those old shows you used to see how like all their ingredients were like lined up in perfect little monkey dishes oh, uh, yeah. while they were uh, cooking their recipes so, <laughs> oh it's so easy so as a, the, so yeah. as a kid you know i was thinking i was like oh i'm gonna do that uh my one little mix-up though is i forgot which ingredient was the sugar and which one was the salt oh yeah <laughs> and, and and uh you know making a pie dough you don't need an incredible amount of sugar or salt uh but still that little difference made made quite a bit of difference oh yeah uh because it turned out to be the saltiest pie dough i ever made <laughs> oh, in my life dude. Now, when I made the pie, uh, I baked it. I, I read the directions. I put together the pie crust, made the pie. I did a nice little lattice over it, which took me like an hour to do as a twelve year old. And when I That's baked it, a lot it, of work for people who've never who doesn't who've never done that anyway <laughs> for the layman. Yeah. Uh, when when I baked it, it came out and it looked pretty good. Um, and when my mom came home, she says, "What what what?" did you do today were you productive and i said yes i did i was very proud and i said i made this blueberry pie and she looked at it and she says wow that's that looks really good actually and then later on for dessert that night we each took a slice and it turned out to be the worst pie we ever had. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah we well, can only go up from there yeah right right yeah. so yeah then after that i i, I did gradually get better Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't commit to start cooking until I joined the military. Um, so this is uh, what, right after high school? Yeah, right after high school. I was I was 17 when I graduated, and uh, I could have gotten in. My parents would have signed a waiver to get me in, but I waited till I turned 18 to to join. And then as, as soon as I turned 18, I did all the paperwork, and then I was shipped off. Uh, first company of the year 2005 mm-hmm. so i got to boot camp in cape may new jersey in 2005 on january 5th this is co yeah coast guard coast guard, okay. coast guard boot camp 
and uh, it was cold there, like cold like a desert boy had not experienced before. Like <laughs> yeah. I, I've seen snow a few times in my life, but I'd never been in a blizzard before. Are you from here in California? Are you from? Yeah, I originally grew up yeah. out near Joshua Tree. Okay, okay. Um, but anyway, back to yeah, the back, cold. <laughs> yeah, so I, I just remember it being cold, and, and you know, boot camp. I mean, I could I could go on all day about that itself. But um, what led to the decision of me cooking was that at the time in the Coast Guard, uh, cook was a critical rate, and it usually is and has been, probably still is. Uh, the Coast Guard is always looking for great cooks. Um, and this time was no exception. So they were offering a bonus for people to go cook right out of boot camp. It was what was called a guaranteed A school, oh. uh, which means that instead of going out to the fleet and doing your time as a seaman, a seaman apprentice, you go straight to school and then you get rated and become a petty officer. And I said, hey, you know what? That sounds like a good deal to me. Yeah. And it was probably about halfway through boot camp that that's what i decided i wanted to do i said you know what i've i've dabbled in cooking a little bit i i, I think i could i could be okay at it mm -hmm. and and i did I, I decided to do that and i went to the coast guard culinary school in petaluma california and i just that's when i decided that i liked to cook yeah i mean i feel like most people don't think about that when they say you went into the military i think they immediately think like oh you're gonna get trained and go serve but like something like what you're talking about is um i mean i would imagine a cook is way more valuable just because oh, one yeah. you're, you're keeping everybody fed and then two if the food's good morale is going to be that Absolutely. much better right there's a As, couple yeah. guys like there's an adage in the army there's, there's a couple guys you don't mess with you don't mess with your comms guy you don't mess with uh your supply guy and you definitely for sure don't mess with your cooks <laughs> right oh. they, they they carry the worst hours um, they're up early in the morning till late at night. They have KP, which of course we assist on, but the KP is like kitchen patrol for us. And, and you do the dishes and you do the after cooking stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and I don't know if it's the same in every branch, but it's man, those cooks, man, they, 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 they get a lot of slack, but they, they do in a very important job. Yeah. Yeah, so so being a cook in the Coast Guard, that was really what formed me into who I who I've become. Um, right out of A school, my first unit was Coast Guard Cutter Sycamore out of Cordova, Alaska, and that is a 225 foot buoy tender. It's got a crew of approximately 50 people. When I first got there, all the cooks were transferring off, going to different units, um, and for a little while i was the only cook on board for 50 people yeah for 50 oh, people Jesus. cooking three meals seven days a week and i had just come out of school i had no choice but but to be good and quick um <laughs> It, it turned out to be about 30 days before anybody transferred in um so for about a month i didn't have a day off and i was working probably 14 oh, 15 hours straight Ooh. um but I did learn a lot in that time. I actually did send myself to the hospital in like the first week because I was exhausted and I wound up like cutting a finger while I was slicing potatoes. Um, 
but you know what i got stitched up and i went right back to work and i cooked dinner right after that so god uh, that's the mission like a, doesn't stop for a second no, thing. no not a real sure. grind. like <laughs> you're you're right out of school and then you're just like oh i'm gonna get some real experience like yeah absolutely <laughs> well i will i will say uh you know to the coast guard yeah. uh, culinary school's credit they if you pay attention they do train you well mm-hmm. i mean they're i bet you get out of the school what you put in there and um you know i i learned that i had a passion for food at that time so it served me pretty well and i i i don't regret not doing that um i i i did really really learn a lot in my first month there um you know even some of the mistakes that i made i learned a few shortcuts when to save time where i could save time um and the schedule was very demanding i would come into work at uh, five o'clock in the morning uh, have breakfast uh, ready to serve by six o'clock oh boy. break down um, uh, since it was Alaska very cold weather so we would have like a soup break at about 10 o'clock so I'd make a fresh soup every single day for 10 o'clock and then at 11 lunch was served and then most people would go home on the ship if we were in port at about two two thirty mm-hmm. and then uh i would get ready to serve dinner at five o'clock yeah, and like then, once people are eating you're already prepping for the next meal like oh not, yeah. not a lot of downtime in between no no yeah. absolutely not the, there was some downtime in between lunch and dinner mm-hmm. that was when i had my most downtime because lunch was served at at 11 uh, to 12 and then after 12 I didn't have to serve again till five o'clock, so that would give me five hours. Mm-hmm. And preparing for fifty people that might sound like a lot, but once you do it over and over again, it just becomes old hat. So well, it's just reps at yeah. that point. Well, I, how much free? I mean, I don't know how limited like you are when you're kind of cooking in the military, but I mean, how much freedom did you have in like what you? could cook or like what yeah what would you serve to the coast guard so basically there there are a series of guidelines when you're a cook in the military and you can really explore quite a bit of freedom within those guidelines okay um so for instance like uh, the guidelines as i remember it was um chicken shall be served at least five times a week beef no more than two times a week uh fish at least once a week uh pork uh no more than three times a week no more than two tomato based products a week and so uh these were just kind of like general guidelines because they don't want your guys dying of cholesterol and and heartburn Mm -hmm. you know (laughs) that's what i was about to ask is it like a caloric thing is it a yeah it's it's a little bit of both um in in alaska the you know caloric intake you need for dealing with the cold weather is a little bit different so that's why there's a soup break in there so people get more calories Uh, during the day and they're able to maintain their pace of work um however uh you still have to watch all the other dietary guidelines you try not to serve them uh you know like red meat more than twice a week you try to avoid all the extra cholesterol Uh, vegetables are very important and then when you're in that kind of 
uh, climate, uh, it can be very tough to get in fresh vegetables all the time. Right. Uh, the the particular town that I was in, the only way we could get uh, food deliveries was by barge, and the barge would come in two times a week. So at the time, we were using Cisco as one of our uh, preferred vendors for the military there, mm-hmm. and basically how it would work was we would put in a Cisco order probably once every two weeks or so and they would load the barge down in uh, Seattle or around uh, Seattle Vancouver area and then it goes all the way up the coast to Alaska so by the time your food gets to you it's already spent a week on the barge and you know your representative for your vendors they're down in the lower 48 as well so the best you could do is talk to them over the phone you never see these people in person so uh the just the logistics of of working up there was a challenge but once once you got used to it and once you were able to uh have them make a a couple of little exceptions and favors for you to get the freshest possible thing Mm -hmm. then it became bearable um because you know food food is morale especially especially in a cold harsh climate like that and especially once you get underway because we were on a ship we would get underway so we didn't spend all our time in port and we could be out on the ocean anywhere from two weeks to two months um our, our our stores on that ship usually wouldn't let us stay out past two months. We would have to come back in for uh, for resupply. But, you know, we'd, we could be out at two months at a time. And then at the end of two months, you start r- running out of a lot of fresh stuff real quick. Mm-hmm. So, you know, after the first week, you have no lettuce anymore. And then after the second week, you start running out of fresh milk. And then you're down to, like, root vegetables and stuff. You know, you got to get real creative to keep it fresh. Well, what are you... Are you just substituting stuff? Is it, like, powdered <clears throat> milk or... Uh, well, you, we never using? used powder milk. We did have some in dry storage, but uh, there was this product we called Space Milk. It was like a, a frozen <laughs> product. Um, and so when we uh, ran out of the fresh stuff, which would usually be in two to three weeks, we would take the uh, the quote-unquote Space Milk out of the freezer, and then it would just thaw out, and then it would go into the we, – we called it the cow. It's basically a milk dispenser. <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of specific items did you get to come up with while you were uh, serving like, uh, everyone there? Um, uh, you know, a lot of items, really. That's that's really where I learned kind of the base of my cooking. I remember learning how to make fried rice. Uh, I had a cook that worked with me that was Hawaiian, and he taught me how to make fried rice, and now I can make some killer fried rice. Nice. Um, I also just learned a, a lot of different techniques, and uh, at that point, I really taught myself how to do a lot of the stuff Um involved in cooking it wasn't until i transferred from alaska to uh, los angeles long beach when i worked at the base support unit which is now sector lalb um that's where i really learned what it what it takes to become a chef i I had a fantastic mentor there um and 
he was he was tough at first he was tough just non-stop yelling uh-huh. all the time super mean guy um <laughs> you know uh, but he saw something in me he saw that i knew what i was doing but that i was just a little a little slow at the time mm-hmm. um and he told me that i needed to step it up and go faster and i did and i worked my ass off for that guy and as a result i learned i learned a lot and i i learned what it took to become a, a chef yeah that must have been it's night and day from alaska to los angeles yeah well you know the thing is is when when i was in alaska when i was on the coast guard cutter sycamore there was one particular day where we were sailing to a spot of anchorage not 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 the city of anchorage a spot to anchor our ship and they were letting one of the junior officers drive the boat and it was taking forever um it took us probably about an hour to get there and at the at the time before we had gotten there they had told everybody to to go to their stations for anchoring and so my station was all the way up on the very front of the ship known as the folksel uh, so I was up on the forecastle, and my job was to raise the Union Jack, which is if you've never seen the Union Jack for the American flag, all it is is the blue field with fifty stars on it. Mm-hmm. So if you ever look at any of our ships in service that are anchored or in port on the very front of the ship, they'll always have this Union Jack on there. Oh. So my job was to raise this flag, and I waited up there for over an hour just to raise this flag. And uh, while I was doing that, it was probably about 38 degrees out, and the wind was blowing at about 40 miles per hour, and it was raining sideways. And I was miserable. I was so miserable. And I knew transfer season wasn't too far out, and I'm (laughs) like, man, after this, I'm going to someplace warmer. (laughs) For sure. So, okay, so you're you're in Los Angeles now. Well, how long were you in Alaska? I was in Alaska for about two and a half years. Two and a half years, and then you come down to Los Angeles. Uh, and then the, this person who was uh, teaching you how to basically open up as a chef, I'm guessing you had more... Um, access to more ingredients so maybe a little more freedom to like do things yeah actually because it's not just like beef stew and roast chicken every every right right right. yeah so at at uh los angeles long beach i i mentored under a a chef named barry wildman Mm -hmm. um he was a cia graduate and he he was in and out of the coast guard uh fortunately by the time i was in uh los angeles long beach he was in and he really taught me a lot um at that particular galley, we made everything from scratch. All of all of the breads that we used were made fresh daily. All of the desserts that we did. Uh, the kitchen was set up in a classic kitchen brigade. Mm-hmm. So there was a sous chef. There was a person working uh, grills, fryers. Uh, you know, there was a saucier. We had all these different stations in the kitchen. And that's where I learned the kitchen brigade. And, uh, you know, he helped us build a library. He, he bought each one of us some essential cookbooks. Uh, one of them was uh, La Russe's Gastronomique. Uh, another one was uh, the new best recipe from America's Test Kitchen. Um, you know, fantastic books. He gave us a couple of other ones that I don't remember off the top of my head. But I remember those two being pretty important to me uh larousse uh gastronomics was important because if i ever had a question he would always tell me to go look it up 
uh, because uh, we had an immense amount of cookbooks in our kitchen there, and we could reference almost anything. If he mentioned a method that I had never heard of before, he would refer me to this book, and I would I would look it up right away. If he had mentioned a sauce or something that I had never heard of, uh, he would refer me to this book, and so I would time and time again go back to this book and learn more about these things he was talking about and then once he once he felt that i was no longer a blithering idiot in the kitchen (laughs) then he really opened (laughs) up and spent some time with me and and really mentored me and and taught me how to do a lot of the stuff um you know like i said we did a lot of our own baking there but uh every wednesday was was our pasta day Mm -hmm. and we made a lot of pastas from scratch there Things like uh, gnocchi, fettuccine, spaghetti, raviolis, we made all of those from scratch. And you're feeding about, what, how many? Is this a much bigger unit than you were with Yeah, before? so... Um, Obviously, you have more people in the kitchen to your kitchen, but... Yeah, when I first got there, we were feeding about 85 people for lunch. Another thing about it was we were only open for breakfast and lunch there most days. Okay. Um, but by the time I left there, we were feeding about 170 people for lunch each day. Oh, wow. Huh. And then, uh, so fr- from here, um, well, was he the one that kind of came up with the menu? It's like, we're making this, this, and this today. Right. Yeah. I mean, in, in the Coast Guard in general, uh, you know, my first unit, we did what was, um, called a, um, ro- rotational menus. Uh, so basically, uh, we would have very similar menus and we'd plan them out like six weeks ahead of time. So we would have six weeks of weekly menus and then we would have like three sets of those. Mm-hmm. And then we would just kind of interchange them a little bit, kind of mix right. them up a little bit. So it's not too monotonous. Um, over yeah, it goes into to the morale part of it. Right. It's like, oh, it's meatloaf again. You know, I don't know, Dave, if you had like days like that. In the- Dude, the, the worst <laughs> days for us were just when... <clears throat> Our cooks didn't have supply, or they oh, just boy. weren't filling it, and we got an MRE. Like that uh, was those were the worst days, you know, because like especially when you're out in the field or when you're in a, a, a forward deployed, you know, environment, and all you want after a, a three week hump is a, a hot meal, and then you just got MREs. That was the worst. Ugh. See, I I think the guys in the Coast Guard have lucked out because the worst the worst they ever got is when the cook comes in hungover from a port of call and, and, and then you get uh, cold cut sandwiches and jello. Man, that would have been fantastic. That would have been fantastic. Yeah, even that sounds doesn't sound too bad. Like I yeah, take that we, now. we we did have MREs on board, but they were locked away in a storage room yeah. uh, way up on top of the ship, and it would be one of the last things to ever come out if the ship were sinking yeah it's like yeah. no one touched those just like, <laughs> exactly. it's actually just a counterweight in the ship just to keep it <laughs> <laughs> it's for it's for looks it's for yeah. aesthetics yeah. it's just there because we have to have it like no one wants them <laughs> oh but uh, okay so how um like how i guess fancy or did you get with the food there was it always was it ever anything elaborate or was it just kind of like oh absolutely uh the food that we served there could best be described as bistro food so not not quite 
super high end, but it wasn't very lowbrow either. Like I said, wow. we we made a lot of our own pastas. Uh, we did everything batch cooking. So in a, in a military chow hall, you know, everything is pretty much served cafeteria style. Mm-hmm. However, uh, in sector LALB, we we made everything as fresh as possible. So what we would do is we would make everything in, in batches. And the best way I could describe that is kind of how panda express is supposed to cook their food (laughs) um where where you know you have a bunch of people come in and they're cooking food as they need it uh, instead of it just like you know withering under a heat lamp for for two hours but uh you know so that that's kind of how we did we cooked everything in batches to make sure it was fresh uh so anytime we were making like a like fresh pasta dish um we would we'd make a big pan of it enough to serve about 10 to 12 people at a time and then once it got down to the last three portions we would fire another one and you know sometimes people might have to wait like two or three minutes to be served which is very unusual in a in a military chow hall usually people come in they get their food they go sit down they eat and they and they leave but every once in a while they they might just have to wait one or two minutes it it was never very long um but sounds efficient as fuck to me yeah (laughs) super efficient but uh but for fresh food uh it was as efficient as as we can make it and we would make things like chicken cacciatore with fresh spetzel um we would make uh like puri puri chicken uh with chimichurri sauce um we like i said we made gnocchi um we would do uh fettuccine some of the sauces for our pastas were like uh like gorgonzola with like walnut uh sauce um then we did like a brown butter with like fried sage for our our gnocchi and we'd make several types of gnocchi we wouldn't just use potatoes we would make like butternut squash gnocchi and all all different sorts of of pastas and that was just on our pasta day well i mean if if you ask the majority of people they've probably never had fresh pasta or yeah probably most people probably couldn't tell you what spetzel is or what gnocchi is so wow that's actually pretty cool that um in what appears to be a very like rigid system they gave you some creative right. control and they and they you know they taught you some some uh more advanced stuff it wasn't just like spaghetti and meatballs i, I right. definitely joined the wrong branch yeah that's what i'm learning from this whole conversation i'm just like i well, could have had what i, I, I didn't want to tell you but <laughs> I, I i i gotta let people come up with their own conclusions yeah boyd's fuming oh, right now. Like, what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> but but also you know we made it an experience we we didn't just have good food we we made it a uh, a nice place to be as well mm-hmm. um outside we did have a small outdoor seating area and among those out, out among that outdoor seating area we had a herb garden and we had like 12 wow. 12 okay. different varieties of thyme wow. uh like 10 varieties of mint um, several varieties of oregano lemongrass uh, we had herbage and and summer savory marjoram we had probably at one point i'd i'd have to say maybe 120 different pots of of different herbs out there holy shit um, all different kinds of basils and it was not uncommon for us to go out into our herb garden uh, with a pair of scissors and take a clipping for whatever we were cooking that day Wow, that's actually like, I mean, that's probably right up there with a lot of actual like you know culinary academies. So wow, you really got your 
your money's worth there. Yeah, well, we, we at one point, we did turn it into uh, somewhat of an academy, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we wanted to treat it as a as a space where other cooks from the Coast Guard could come and, and learn uh, good cooking techniques and, and, and really take... Um, some excellent recipes and techniques back to the fleet with them mm-hmm. um and we ha- we hosted a couple of symposiums um at our unit and uh one one thing that i really enjoyed about it and one of the things uh where is i i really learned my my love of of not just cooking but teaching there as well because i got to host a couple of classes for that symposium um one one of the classes was like a, like a food history class, and uh, another one was a class on on different spices. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were a lot of fun. I, I did enjoy that. Yeah, I would have been a total sucker for that food history class. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. I, I love I love food history, and uh, you know I love spices too. And you know those two kind of go hand in hand. The world has a a very interesting history with with the spice trade. Not always a great one, but right. But certainly there. Because spice was, you know, practically as valuable valuable as, like, currency in the past. Right, even yeah. more so. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was valuable enough for, you know, an enterprising company to go in and wipe out whole populations of people on yeah. certain islands just to, you know, ship nutmeg back home. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, just... When you think about it, like the silk and spice roads mm-hmm. back in the day, the Mongolians, man, that was their like that was their cash cow. You know, yeah. they controlled a lot of that. A lot and a lot of civilizations in that region fought over the rights to those roads. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's it's so crazy how like spice and food has kind of written the history of the world. Yeah, to be honest, cra- like sugar, the sugar yeah. trade, and now it's like boiled down to like you see someone using on Food Network using like a little bit of nutmeg for whatever dish mm-hmm. they're making. Yes, yeah. Now, it's like, now, God, it's now a, it's like oh, now it's that common thing we can just find in the yeah, store. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's ubiquitous <laughs> now. There's you know, there's there's no no bloodshed over nutmeg or cinnamon these days. I felt like growing up, that kind of appreciation appreciation for food wasn't around. I think with more information being available you're starting to see that come back because i mean my youtube viewing habits like a good chunk of it now is like eater binging with babish bon appetit like i'm just watching a bunch of cooking shows and uh not even necessarily for the cooking they're just kind of like breaking down like this is how this works oh alton brown that's another big one yeah right um but uh okay so you're um at lef uh L-A-L-B? Yeah. L-A-L-B. Yeah. Okay. So how long are you there before you get to move on? So uh, I was there until 2010. In 2010, I, I left the Coast Guard and I moved to Costa Mesa, California. And uh, while I was there, I attended uh, OCC mm-hmm. and I went to the culinary program in there. And you're, um, you're done with military? Yeah. At, at that point, point okay. I was done. I, 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 I got out. I, I was spent six years or thereabouts in, in uh, the Coast Guard. And um, I, I got out, went to OCC. And the reason why was I said, you know, I learned a lot 
while I was in the Coast Guard, I could probably be a pretty decent cook. Uh, but for some reason, I had it in my mind that I wanted my piece of paper that could tell people uh-huh. that I could do those things. So I spent the next few years going to culinary school in OCC, which was a fantastic program. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, of course, did uh, kind of hone and refine a lot of my skills, uh, skills that I had acquired already from working in LALB. But I still did learn some valuable things, and I met a lot of other fantastic uh, cooks and chefs that that were attending at the time as well. Yeah, I bet it's a lot more um, influences and uh, lot, things that uh, um, pretty much could influence your cuisine today. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, well, I will say, I mean, growing up where I did, I grew up out in the middle of the desert next to Joshua Tree. There is not a whole lot going on out there. And then, you know, from there, I went to Alaska. Um, so, I mean, more or less, my life was like fairly sheltered. You know, I, I hadn't had a lot of exposure. Um, there were, There was not a great diversity in the town that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of people treated me like... Uh, you know, I was ethnic minority, which I, which I am, but I'm also, um, you know, half, half Caucasian as well. And, you know, a lot of people tend to, uh, focus more on, on the way that I looked, how much different that I looked than them. Mm -hmm. And I didn't have a lot of people to relate to growing up other than, you know, some of the other minority people in my town, which were very, very far and few in between. So I became friends with, you know, a a lot of the other minorities in my town, what little there were. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, uh, growing up, I saw, like a lot of movies a lot of tv and i saw the stereotype of a lot of other minority people elsewhere and i just never thought that was real Uh, even when i you know moved to alaska and and then when i came to la lb and uh you know i started interacting with people from from various different backgrounds and and i just thought that was cool mm-hmm. you know it made me respect uh you know the the diverse population we have here in southern california so much more um i'm just glad that i was able to get out from under that rock yeah it's a it's a trip like we are we are pretty spoiled out here cuz when i go outside of southern california and i go to places that are just it's just this here. It's very like, very jarring because I'm I, I'm not used to that. I'm, I grew up around here in Orange, and uh, you, you really do like oh, you you really learn to appreciate like what you have here and what you can learn from here. Um. So okay. So you're at OCC. Um. What uh, what, what things kind of set it apart? Because you said you learned some some new skills and like what what was it about this type of training that like um set it apart i think what what set it apart is in the coast guard i i had been to several culinary schools i went to the coast guard culinary a school and then i went to um one of their nutrition c schools Mm -hmm. where you know it's basically just like a school all over again but they teach you how to make things slightly more healthy Uh and then uh i we won a galley of the year at, at Los Angeles, Long Beach. And, um, uh, the prize for that was to send, um, somebody, a representative from the unit to, um, uh, culinary courses 
at the Culinary Institute of Virginia, mm-hmm. which was the old Johnson Wales campus. And so I was lucky enough to go to that. And that was like a two week, uh, you know, crash course in culinary school. So, you know, by this point, like I had had quite a bit of formal training, but what really set this apart was the pace. It was was a lot more drawn out. I really had a lot more time to actually learn very specific techniques. And even the ones that I thought that I had mastered already, I had time to to really perfect those. So what's an example of a a skill like that? So I, I would say a lot of it had to do with baking like making okay yeah so i i I learned how to bake stuff in the coast guard and you know i learned a lot of shortcuts when i was in the coast guard especially when you're on a ship and you know it's going up and down back and and forth the only one side to side yeah Yeah. and sometimes (laughs) when you're the only one um you know a lot of times you resort to like like box mixes and there's not i have nothing against box mixes actually to this day i'm probably uh you know maybe i'm in the minority of chefs that think that you know a box mix is okay from time to time Mm -hmm. Uh, some of them are certainly tasty and they're you could actually do quite a bit with them Um, more more than just adding water eggs and and oil to it to get the product that it says on the box I mean you could add just butter to it and get like crumbles make like a nice um, uh, crumble or you know you could make it more biscuit like and make a cobbler with it anyways you know they're 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 pretty tremendous you could do Mm -hmm. a lot with them so i learned uh, a bunch of shortcuts with the box mixes and then i did a lot of uh, baking from scratch when i got to lalb when i went to culinary school i learned a lot of the methods behind all that ah okay and so I, I learned, you know, a lot of people think that that baking is a very strict thing and you have to mind your ratios. And, you know, it, it certainly is. Baking is all about chemical reactions between certain products. You know, you have your, your leaveners, you have salt, sugar, uh, all these ingredients that are reacting with one another during baking. And it is very important to, to get them... Uh, to react together in in the way that you want. However, uh, it it can be a little bit more loose than that. You do have some wiggle room. A lot of people think baking is a very, very exact science, Mm -hmm. and it is to to some extent. However, you can always troubleshoot what goes wrong when you bake something. Right. So, for instance, when you have a cookie and you put it in the oven and it just spreads out and it is super flat that usually means that maybe you don't have enough flour in there or you put way too much fat in there um and then there are other uh symptoms of of you know cookie deformities that you could break down just based upon your knowledge of baking in these reactions oh i see okay um and then uh in anything with um kind of exotic ingredients that you came across while you were at uh, the, the culinary academy or yeah so when i when i was at occ we used to get in quite a, quite a bit of different ingredients one of the things that i really enjoyed most there was uh was when we made our own sausages mm-hmm. and um uh you know we they had a big meat grinder and a big sausage stuffer that we could use uh it, not that not that that's an exotic ingredient we did get things like uh like duck and uh even 
even though it doesn't sound exotic, uh, we worked with uh, whole catfish, which you know, uh, not in a sausage, not not in uh, a sausage, oh, okay. but um, there was one particular time where we were frying whole catfish, which ah. I had never done before. I'd never fried a whole catfish. I don't see a lot of that out here. No, it's it, very it's, rare. Yeah, yeah it's, it's very regional too. Yeah. You know, like, like I literally was in the barracks uh, when I was stationed in uh, Fort Bliss, El Paso. We had a guy from Louisiana, and he'd do a, a catfish fry like once a week for everyone. Oh, but awesome. and he was just a master at it. It was incredible to watch. Yeah, for growing up, growing up around here, the only place, yeah, the only place you got catfish was like maybe the uh, the Vietnamese markets, right? Like and and this yeah. this was on um, uh, on a. When when we did that, that was uh, during a course where we were actually running a restaurant at the school. Uh, they call it the captain's table down in OCC. Mm-hmm. And so every week they have a different menu. And I believe that week we were doing kind of a Pan-Asian and that that whole fried catfish was like a um, a Vietnamese type plate. Ah, okay. Yeah, so it was done, done in that style. And that was the first time that I had done that. But... A lot of a lot of the times, um, what I really took away the most from was just some of the basic classes. It was the classes we we had where we are breaking down like cuts of meats and and uh, fabricating cuts of meats because uh, we would get in the primals the primal cuts of like beef and then we'd get like whole chickens in uh, primal cuts of pork things like that and breaking it down. Just the very uh, simple. Um, methods because the thing is is once once you master something with just the basic methods you could really do you could transfer that to anything right. so um you know that that even goes to like cooking an alligator or a snake you know once you once you break down something that's very similar to it then you can pretty much go down the board you're a cooked alligator snake yeah i have <laughs> i have cooked some alligator in fact i cooked alligator for the first time when i was in the military um oh that's <laughs> awesome <laughs> yeah yeah i had i uh when i was i was i was stationed out at lalb but i got deployed a lot and one of my deployments was on um uh, uh to the um uh, the coast guard cutter polar sea which is an icebreaker out of seattle and one of the people that i worked for there was a cajun chef and they had a soup break there at 10 o'clock as well and they had asked me to make a gumbo and so i said okay so i'm rummaging through you know the refrigerator and the freezer for ingredients and um you know, I managed to pull everything together, but one of the things that I found uh, back in deep freeze that I was able to get out was uh, like a little five-pound pack of like alligator meat. What was alligator doing in there? Someone you know what? I, yeah, I think somebody had just ordered it for the hell of it. Yeah, I don't, I, yeah. Sometimes people do that. You know, they just order things for the hell of it. What but. cut of the alligator is it? Is it the like, the? I don't even know what. Yeah, you need what from would an you? Alligator. Yeah, that you know what? That's a good question. I've never. <laughs> butchered an alligator but i've used the meat of it um the cheeks yeah <laughs> i don't know well you know if i if i had to guess i would say that there you know the tail looks fairly meaty so there might be okay. some meat around the tail yeah um as with anything you you have uh, some meat around uh the areas of like the back 
is where uh, like the loin would be. Okay. Um, so, you know, you probably probably getting meat from those areas. I've I've yeah. never butchered an alligator before. This this meat came prepackaged. Well, I guess if you can eat an oxtail, you can eat alligator tail. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> What do you? What did you do with the alligator? Yeah, so so is I, it like I, a leaner meat? Like, yeah, it is. is it? it is okay. pretty lean. Doesn't have much much fat in it. Um, uh, you know, it's the the texture is a little different. It's it's kind of like a cross between chicken and a fish as far as the texture goes. Oh, um, yeah. it's delicious. Yeah, oh, okay. it is pretty good. But I, I I put it in the gumbo, so I, I got um, the alligator meat, some andouille sausage. I found like some some okra, um, and I got all that together. Uh, one of the things that was really challenging making uh, gumbo was making the roux. So if you've ever made a gumbo before, you know that that making the roux is numero uno. It is the most important part of making a gumbo, and you want to make a very very dark roux for a excellent gumbo it, it's just with like flour and but is that am i right on that? yeah so a lot of a lot of a traditional roux is uh flour and, and butter mm-hmm. um a lot of people that do cajun cooking just use flour and oil, it, flour and oil okay. yeah it just depends so uh you know a roux a very plain and simple is just fat and flour mm-hmm. um but with a making a gumbo or a cajun roux you want to make that really really dark um the issue with that was on the coast guard cutter polar sea it's very challenging because they have steam jacketed kettles and what that is is that's a kettle and it's got a hollow space in it where steam is piped in Mm -hmm. and that won't get hot enough to brown anything because steam is only 212 degrees you know it could get up to like 260 280 at most but it doesn't get hot enough to to really like brown anything so i had to make the roux in the oven um and that that took a little bit of time but then once i got everything situated put everything in the steam jacketed kettle and then i made my alligator gumbo in the steam jacketed kettle and and they loved it in fact the the chef that i was working for at the time he said it was one of the better gumbos that he had uh uh, but but the thing that stuck out in my mind besides his words of praise uh and and this is one thing i repeat to this day he he always used to tell me uh where he's from if you got a good 10 foot stretch of ditch you can make a good gumbo so Any chance we see that at the wall? Just the alligator gumbo. <laughs> uh, you know, well, gumbo gumbo could be a possibility in the future. Uh, one of the things that I'm thinking about doing is changing up the menu a little bit to incorporate a a uh, fry of the month. So we already do a burger oh. of the month, and we do several iterations of our fries. So I'm thinking about about getting rid of the Okonomi fries, which you know they're very tasty. But, you know, yeah, maybe they've run its course a little yeah. bit. Um, and then getting rid of the tzatziki fries. And instead of having those, having a rotating kind of fry. Mm-hmm. And so one of the ones that I've been thinking of for a long time now is having some gumbo fries on there. Ooh, that'd be dope. <laughs> so uh, after culinary school, are you bouncing around from restaurant to restaurant? I mean, how, how did you eventually... 
Yeah, so uh, toward, towards the end of culinary school, I decided that it was time to get a job. Um, I, <laughs> I, was, um, I was living pretty sweet off that Montgomery GI Bill, um, but I, I did get a job, and I started as a dishwasher uh, just to make a little extra cash at a, at a pizzeria in Costa Mesa. With all your experience? They, yeah. Well, oh. you know, I've always been a pretty humble person. Like, my, my dad always taught me, you know, to, to be humble. So, uh, you know, I, I figured I was breaking into a new industry and in the civilian sector and you know i wanted to start from the bottom so i started as a dishwasher at a pizzeria and wow. you know that was fun because i didn't have any responsibilities and you know i'd just show up to work wash some dishes i would occasionally deliver a pizza and you know it was costa mesa so sometimes i'd get tipped pretty good sometimes mm-hmm. they would just give me weed uh, <laughs> that'll work yeah, that's, I mean, kind of saves you a trip, really. Like, yeah. cut out the middle man. Yeah, they did cut out the middle man. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah, that, that job was cool. And uh, then at a, at a, you know, at about the same time, I started working at um, Macy's Signature Kitchen at South Coast Plaza. Oh, okay. so, so I hung up the dishwashing, and then I went to work for Macy's at their Signature Kitchen at South Coast Plaza. And I, I started as a line cook there. And... Um, uh, there I was primarily flipping burgers, making sandwiches, and then it had a little bit of a barbecue element to it. Uh, we represented three celebrity chefs there. We represented uh, Marcus Samuelson, uh, Nancy Silverton, and Kat Cora. Oh, wow. uh, so those were the three chefs that we represented at our little signature kitchen. One of the things that was really cool about that job actually was we had a demo kitchen uh, attached to our our kitchen, and so we occasionally got some celebrity chefs and that would come in and work with us and do demos for the public and that was pretty awesome i I got to meet marcus samuelson i actually got to meet and work with ming sai and uh and i met martha stewart and uh oh uh, oh, and then kobe came to watch well kobe's (laughs) wife came to watch ming sai oh and kobe (laughs) kobe came with her to drop her off and like he he was seriously like the nicest person i've or nicest celebrity i've ever met oh that's yeah super courteous (laughs) oh so yeah that's actually good that uh that that seems to be like where your first like work experience like started to take off and um uh, how long before how long are you doing that before you end up at the at the wall well that was back in 2012 so still a little ways off okay after after that i was i was still in culinary school at about that point and then once i uh, at the end of culinary school i i had a a um one of the people that i worked with in culinary school one of the people i went to school with he quit school because he he um, got hired to be a head chef at a restaurant in Santa Ana and he approached me for a job and he asked me if I wanted to be his sous chef and I said yeah that sounds great I, I, said, oh, wow. I, I still want to finish up school but yeah I'd love to come work for you and that restaurant was called Diego's and it was in downtown Santa Ana it was on 3rd and Spurgeon you kind recognize of, that one? kind Maybe. of across the street from uh, uh, the Yost Theater oh. Diego's I don't know that one I, do you? I, I, um no, I don't think I've ever been there. No, no we were there for a couple of years. Okay. Um, it was like two, 2012 to like uh, like halfway through 2013, okay. so, something like that. But anyways, uh, after that, um, 
I, I worked there and I learned a lot about Latin flavors, which was really nice. I'd never worked with uh, like a lot of uh, Mexican regional cuisine or anything mm-hmm. like that before, and I really fell in love with it. Um, I, I used to make fresh bolillos there every day. Uh, we had our own uh, Oaxacan dark mole recipe Ooh. that had like 27 different ingredients and took like four hours to make. Uh, <laughs> I developed that recipe and it, it was phenomenal. Uh, we used a very special chili called a Oaxacan chili, uh, which we made uh, a sauce called Oaxaca Q. Uh, so it was basically a bar- barbecue sauce with the, this chili is the star of it. And that was really good. Those are some of the things that I miss about that restaurant. But some of the things that I still carry on to this day, I still make some of that stuff at home. And maybe there'll be a place for some of that stuff at the wall in the future. Yeah, and you're just collecting these recipes in your head. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I developed a lot of them for that restaurant, but uh, we wound up closing after about a year and a half. So, um, you know, I just took everything with me. Mm-hmm. After that... Um, uh, my daughter was born uh, just before we closed up there, and uh, you know I spent a little bit of time at home, and uh, it was actually a little bit tough to find a job at that point, yeah. you know, for for somebody who'd been a sous chef but not been one for too long. Um, it was it was tough to find a job, uh, but then I found a place called Brew Hog Barbecue in mm-hmm. in Orange here, and. Um, I, I went to work for for them. I actually knew the chef that was there at the time, and he asked me to come work for him because he knew me from Diego's. He he knew me as uh, quote unquote the cupcake guy the cupcake because guy? <laughs> uh, every Wednesday at Diego's I would make um, uh, cupcakes and I'd sell them for fifty cents a piece. It was just kind of a way to get customers in the door. Oh, but it was always like a different cupcake, you know. Um, some some weeks it was i think one of my favorite cupcakes was a a chocolate stout cupcake and then we did a a bourbon uh buttercream on there mm-hmm. and then i did a a whiskey caramel sauce to drizzle over the top oh, wow it was it was super boozy and really really good <laughs> I, I still love that that cupcake oh that sounds awesome do you consider yourself more uh, do you, I mean, do you subscribe to more like you know? Are you baker? Are you more this type of cook? Do you do you kind of have something I, where you I would classify like, yourself? I would as? like to say I'm fairly well rounded. I'm mm-hmm. certainly no pastry chef. Yeah. Um, but but I can dabble a little bit. One of the things that I do not have patience for, and kudos to those who do, is decorating cakes. <laughs> I, I I'm sorry. I just I don't have the patience for it. I will make you a cake all day long. I will frost it very basically, but if you want shells on there, if you want writing on there, like you may want to go with uh, with Albertsons. <laughs> as long as it tastes good, that seems yes. to be the. <laughs> Actually, do you worry about? Um, I mean, the food at the wall just happens to be very like Instagram worthy. But I mean, is that something you consider when you're making your new dishes? Oh, absolutely! It's something that you have to consider, uh, especially in this day and age. Everybody is is photographing their food. I mean, one one of my favorite things. I think it came out a couple of years ago. There was uh, uh, this might have been when Vines was still around, but there was a, a guy that would 
like go out with his friends and as they would be like instagramming their food he would just like attack their food with the fork and i thought that, that i thought that was great you know uh you know that that really encapsulates how i feel about like the whole instagram craze mm-hmm. although it, it really is a double-edged sword i mean you, you have these people out there instagramming your food and you know it could do great good it could bring attention to to what you're doing but at, at the same time it could bring attention for all the wrong reasons you know yeah and it uh i mean yeah it's great publicity but also i mean people who consider themselves like food critics even though they're just yelpers that could just be like the end of it like people can think like they're hypercritical like they think like saying all this stuff makes them sound smarter and like really it's just like guys it's yeah (laughs) as as a chef you learn to take those things with a grain of salt you know not not everybody on yelp is a food critic Mm -hmm. and you know i I learned a long time ago uh, even when i was in the military that you can't please everyone you can you can shoot for pleasing a majority of people and that has to be good enough because the 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 second that that we lower ourselves to the lowest common denominator we lose something special mm-hmm. and you know i think the wall is something special and i and, and i want to keep building it and keep bringing more unique things in um but you know that doesn't necessarily mean not everybody's going to like it and you know everybody's entitled to their own opinion that's that's perfectly okay yeah did you get did you build up kind of a tough skin like at the like culinary culinary academy because i I figure like you know it started in the military to be honest yeah you know because everybody razzes each other in the military that's true yeah 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 (laughs) you wouldn't believe the things that i've seen and 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 heard so Uh, i mean judging from some of dave's stories i I feel like (laughs) i would believe you (laughs) oh yeah no i've I've seen more full frontal male nudity in in the in the military for probably a few lifetimes so you're like that's that's enough i don't need that anymore (laughs) um so how about this what is what does a chef prefer when it comes to food like do you have like preferences when do you have a sweet tooth do you like more savory stuff like what what does a chef eat I, I think it's that answer is a little different for each chef, but okay. one thing that's indicative is you can always tell what a chef is craving by what they put on their menu, and and I believe that's true. Um, there are many things that I love. I like comfort foods, but I love comfort foods of all different sorts. So one of my most favorite dishes of all time is Japanese-style curry because mm. my, my grandmother was Japanese, and... Uh, when I was a kid growing up, I remember on on cold winter nights, that's something that she would make, and that's that's just something I crave to this day. I, and I, I'll, I'll make it at home occasionally. Unfortunately, nobody in my household loves curry of any sort like oh, I do. It, it is a shame. <laughs> um, so now I've had to resort to, um, you know, finding restaurants that make a decent one. Yeah, Japanese curry, that's like a different animal from the, the Indian curry. Mm, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I've, I think I've only been to like one or two places out here in Southern California. They were, it, was, it was okay. It's It's kind of... I wouldn't call it as aggressive as, like, Indian curry. I don't know if you have more more insight. Yeah, so uh, Japanese curry is is quite a bit different. It tends to be a little bit sweeter Mm -hmm. in in most cases. Uh, It tends to be a little bit more muted than Indian curry. Mm -hmm. Um, it, It got its start from actually... 
um, the uh, trade, opening up trade in Japan in the late 1800s when when uh, when when the Japanese were when they were I don't want to say coerced they were convinced to open up trade and then everybody started trading with Japan and uh, you know the English um, had an, an immense spice trade at that time mm-hmm. and one of the things that they sold to the the Japanese that they absolutely loved was curry powder huh and so they they developed their their taste for curry then of course at that time that spice that spice mix was fairly expensive however the enterprising japanese they figured out how to make their own the the old company that used to make the curry powder was c and b and then when the japanese made it they their company was called s and b and i'm i'm pretty sure you've seen uh little can of s and b curry powder on the store shelf somewhere it's become ubiquitous but that's you know pretty much true to the original formula as when you know the japanese first started buying the curry powder and then uh you know it was was still fairly expensive and it wasn't until after world war ii that there were several companies that learned how to uh make make what's called a roux a different roux it's it's the little um bricks that kind of look like a chocolate bar that are instant curry sauce so there's like a house curry java curry like vermont it's curry kind of almost all like different a brands bouillon cube yeah like kind of like cur- a bouillon cube okay. and basically all you got to do is uh drop these little uh guys into like water or stock and it makes instant curry sauce oh. and they're, they're it's really good actually it tastes <laughs> phenomenal uh, do you have any like comfort foods that are like because I feel like most people would expect you to have like a really refined taste. Is there like you know a guilty pleasure for food that you? You, you know, let <laughs> let me let me talk for a moment about refined taste. Yeah, I'm I'm actually not one of those guys. I, uh-huh. I tend to reject the fine taste things. Uh, not that I don't think foie gras isn't great. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it certainly does taste good. Not that I don't think uh, Kobe beef uh, tastes great. It's certainly great. Um, you know all those things taste good truffles are good mm-hmm. uh however it is not hard to make a kobe beef steak taste good it's not hard to make foie gras taste good uh, it's not hard to make truffles taste good because those things already taste great mm-hmm. what i really enjoy is when a cook takes something that's simple and humble of origin and turns it into something extraordinary mm-hmm. that is what i really enjoy um just like taking like a skirt steak or something and yeah, yeah yeah i mean skirt steak i mean grill up a great tri-tip you mm-hmm. know some something like that or even maybe something that doesn't have meat recently i i uh, there was a restaurant that closed that was in cerritos they were called curry katsu and they made japanese style curry they made their curry from scratch and it was phenomenal it was one of the best curries i've ever had since i remember my grandmother making it and that's what i really enjoyed about it was was the 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 artistry that went into to you know making a really good bowl of curry it wasn't the instant stuff that you get from the store even though that stuff certainly tastes good um it was something special um a lot of things that that 
make me comfortable, the comfort food that I crave. They're all basic things. I, I like a lot mm-hmm. of things that fill you up, um, you know, like red beans and rice. I absolutely love a good red beans and rice. Um, I love a good beef stroganoff. Mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily like things that are super high end. That's not that's not my go to because I don't feel that you get the best bang for your buck. And uh, you know, I, I didn't grow up rich or anything. I, I wasn't able to afford all that, you know, a, a lot of stuff um, growing up. And my dad, for the most part, did a lot of the cooking when I was younger. We never went out to eat in restaurants when I was younger. We went out to eat at a restaurant like maybe three or four times a year, maybe. Yeah, my parents are the same way. Yeah, so I mean, I mean... Uh, you know once a quarter we would go to like a chinese restaurant um we had a german restaurant in our town that we never went to for some reason uh <laughs> not a lot of german restaurants yeah i don't know yeah. my dad didn't yeah. just didn't like german food um <laughs> yeah uh, but yeah, we, we had a Chinese restaurant and we had a, a, a decent Mexican restaurant that my mom liked. So that's the one we'd go to most often. And we only went like on special occasions. So like my mom's birthday, my parents' anniversary and, and well, I can't think of any other special occasions that may have been maybe one of our birthdays or something. But for the most part, my dad did a lot of the cooking at home. And so I grew up with a lot of traditional comfort food like mm-hmm. meatloaf and Salisbury steak and, you know, things like that. Things things that are simple but, but filling. And even still to this day, those are the foods that, that I that I crave. Yeah, I feel like that even comes across now. Because even though we, you said, like, there's international street food, which sounds uh, like it can be complicated. Like, from what I've seen, it's just a lot of simpler things done very well. Yeah. yeah. Chilaquiles kills oh, it. Oh, God. That's... Man, that, that is just incredible. Yeah. <laughs> Breakfast burrito, incredible. Yeah. The wings are great. And then you have the, you know, the little... Uh, <clears throat> The sausage, uh, the bacon brats, the bacon oh, brats, yeah, brat delicious. <laughs> Man, you get a little bit of everything, and it's like I think it goes back to like the simplicity and making something simple mm-hmm. taste really fantastic. Yeah, right. I don't know. It's when you think about chilaquiles, it's like chips or like tortilla and a sauce and a meat or so, or a protein, but this one has an egg and. You know, and then the protein. Oh man, it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 not a it's not a difficult dish to make, and it's super super humble in origin. And you know, at at the end of the day, I think those are kind of the foods that a lot of us a lot of us crave. Like mm-hmm. very few people actually say oh you know what i'm totally craving a, a kobe beef steak today or yeah i totally crave uh, caviar right yeah, now just yeah. <laughs> i could totally go for like some blinis with some caviar oh yeah <laughs> i mean don't get me wrong all those all those foods are great i mean but i don't want to eat foie gras every day I, mm-hmm. you know that, that's just not i, I it wouldn't it probably wouldn't be good for me and uh, especially not my pocketbooks so. yeah, yeah. <laughs> for sure now is there anything that you've wanted to do i mean you don't have to give any real secrets but like if if you had your like no limits it's like i want to make this do you have any yeah so i actually do have a couple of concepts under my hat for some future restaurants mm-hmm. and i've i've been watching 
kind of some new emerging restaurants across the country. And I've been getting a little nervous because a couple of them have gotten close to this concept that I want to do. And, and one of them was was just named one of the best new restaurants in the country. I, I wish I could tell you what it was called, but I don't remember uh, because I got nervous that it was close to my concept. And it's, it's not a huge secret. It's uh, basically like American barbecue meets Mexican food. Oh, so um, there's there's been a couple of concepts that I've seen um, do this, but I don't think they're pulling off, pulling it off to the extent that I would, mm-hmm. uh, because I really really love barbecue and I really really love Mexican food, and I especially love regional Mexican food. And so what I would do is I would incorporate the disciplines of. Uh, both traditional American barbecue and and some uh, some fairly regional Mexican dishes, so that's kind of one of the concepts that I, I might be doing in the future. I got a couple more under my hat, but I right. won't disclose those at the yeah. time. <laughs> Please yeah. just let us know when you decide to do that. Yeah, we'll be there. <laughs> we like the be there. day you change the menu, it's like, we'll yeah. be right there. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when I do that, that may or may not be with the wall. So oh, okay. yeah, even better. Just, yeah. It's just a new spot to go. Yeah, Let's we'll, do we'll definitely check out your food. <laughs> um, I think uh, we're going to have to wrap this up. Uh, Chef Rainstar, thank you for coming in and uh, talking about uh, your, your art, essentially. It, this has been really fascinating. Um, do you have anything to, to plug, anything coming up uh, that you want to put out there for people to where people can find you basically yeah i guess uh my my plugs would be the wall restaurant um we're located in uh, orange at the orange circle uh, 80 plaza square if you don't know where that's at uh you could also google it that's always a good idea <laughs> uh, we t- and we talk about it all the time on this show so yeah <laughs> right right um and then you could follow me on instagram at uh one celery and justice for all um <laughs> nice <laughs> I, I am currently working on a personal project uh, called Rainstar's Table, and this is going to be um, uh, my tagline is gourmet food for uh, comfort and company. So it's going to be basically um, a food that a chef eats at home and, you know, uh, the kind of food that they make when they entertain people as well and so i'm going to make those recipes available to everybody as as well as like ideas so oh dude you're welcome to come back and launch uh, plug that once that launches yeah yeah absolutely so that's something i'm currently working on now might be a couple of months out but Mm -hmm. it'll be it'll be pretty dope once it launches fantastic dave where can people find you uh they can find me on that boyd 1989 on instagram um, or David Boyd on Facebook, either one. I'm better at Facebooking than Instagramming. Um, and I'm just not, eh, it's just not my thing. Because people aren't sending you those DMs I'm, yet. I'm trying, man. Yeah. We tell them every time. DMs. <laughs> Jump in those DMs. I will respond. Just send whatever at this point. Always get sent the wrong thing. I tell them to send me <laughs> nudes and I get all these weird pictures. All I want is a bowl of ramen. Exactly. <laughs> just one, just DM Chef Rainstar a bowl of ramen. You ask for nudes, they like, send you yeah. just a picture of an uncooked chicken. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that'd be wrong. <laughs> so I'd be so mad at that. It's not any of the nudes that I want. Oh, just send them ramen. That's all he wants. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not very good at social media thing, but I'm working on it. Um, one of the big plugs for me is just uh, 
uh, uh, being a veteran, um, understanding the, some of the struggles that we go through after we separate, um, after combat, things like that. Um, just for veterans out there that are listening, um, you know, there are places, outlets to get help. Um, and even if it's just reaching out to another veteran, I mean, like I said, get in those DMs, reach out to your buddies, check on your, check on your buddies, check on your battle buddies. That's a, that's my biggest thing is because we can talk to each other better than anyone else can talk to us. So, um, just know that, you know, the war isn't over when you're done and you're not forgotten. And, uh, if you're having some issues, just go ahead and reach out. And you can find me on Instagram at Justin Malari and on Twitter at Justin underscore Malari. And the Geek Offensive has its own social media with the handle at Geek Offensive. This show is part of the Geek Say What Network. So, uh, you know, big thank you to the network for providing a platform for us. And a big thank you to the owner for, uh, uh, you know, giving us the opportunity to talk nerdy every week. But seriously, Jason makes me say thank you. So, fuck that guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm kidding. Sort of. Uh, the network has a plethora of other shows available right now, ready for download on Google and Apple Podcasts and all other major plat- uh, platforms. Uh, first up, check out Ready, Set, Geek, your starting line to geek culture, hosted by Alex Catherine. And then you have Geek KO, our weekly trivia podcast, hosted by Justin Madriaga and Ish. Next up, we have our actual play RPG podcast, Nerds on a Roll, hosted by Rob Cigar and Lord Peterson and their whole crew. And then we have Diverse Geeks in Focus, hosted by Gemma Vidal, putting a lens on marginalized issues within the geek community. And finally, we have Pencil Neck Geeks, our wrestling dedicated like podcast, tagging in your inner wrestling geek, uh, hosted by Berto Ponce and Elaine Dolales. So please download and subscribe to uh, all of those. We really do appreciate it. Next shout out goes to our associate producers, Wayland Productions, who provide the space for us, the equipment. They help us sound great. You can find them at wayland.ws. And please follow their uh, latest audio drama, Wear Alive Gold Rush. Uh, I believe it's available on Apple Podcasts right now. Last shout out goes to our apparel sponsor, jordandene.com. That's Jordan, D-E-N-E dot com. They're a geek apparel store out of Brooklyn, New York. They help you look nerdy and they're eco-friendly. And if you shop with the promo code GeekSayWhat, you get 20% off your next purchase. So buy a shirt, you heathens. And I believe that's it. Chef, thank you so much. This was a blast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, once everything launches on your side, come back. We'll definitely talk about that. Don't forget to rate, comment, and subscribe to join the offensive. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.